looking at the glorious church, and um, we're going to be doing a survey in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the churches on the Macedonian Peninsula and the Metropolitan, and at the time, probably the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest cities in the world at Ephesus. And what do you tell people that, from a material standpoint, already have it all? I don't know. Does that sound like anyone in, right? How do you convince them of their spiritual scarcity and get them to lay behind all that they have because they've been offered something of so much and so far surpassing worth that they realize it truly is the best deal in the universe? What do you tell people? How do you convince them of their spiritual scarcity? Now, scarcity is an interesting thing. Um, I, uh, my wife and I, we uh, went through a brief period um, of scarcity uh, after we got married. Both of us were raised uh, in families where I don't think we really ever went wanting for anything that we needed. Um, and then after we got married, uh, we had a rude awakening. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, and part of that was the greatest bait-and-switch of all time. Michelle thought she was marrying a uh, future wealth manager for an investment firm. That's what I went to school for. Uh, and what she got was a, uh, a very passionate uh, but broke um, touring Christian musician. Um, and th that was, uh, we didn't really, we had some struggles paying the bills for, for a few years. And it uh, it, we got used to this idea of scarcity, and I don't know, probably most people um, in this room have experienced at one time or another a season, a short season, or sometimes even a long season of scarcity, and it's, um, it's, it's something that uh, can be very instructive, um, but uh, it can also uh, illuminate for us how we were before Jesus came into our life, the spiritual scarcity that we experienced. And the, uh, just to uh, give you a, uh, a story, you know, in the late 1800s, there was a woman by the name of Hetty Green, and she was nicknamed the Witch of Wall Street. She was an American businesswoman and a financier, and she was known in the late 1800s as the richest woman in America. And after her death in 1916, the Guinness Book of World Records named her as the greatest miser of all time because she amassed more than a $100 million fortune but never enjoyed the benefits of her wealth. She was said never to turn on the heat or to use hot water. She wore one old black dress and undergarments that she changed only after they had been worn out. She did not wash her hands and she rode in an old carriage. She ate mostly pies that cost 15 cents or ate cold oatmeal because it cost too much to heat the water. One account claims that she spent half a night searching her carriage for a lost stamp worth two cents. Another asserts that she instructed her laundress to wash only the dirtiest parts of her dresses to save money on soap. Her extreme frugality extended to her family life. When her son Ned broke his leg as a child, Hetty tried to have him admitted to a free clinic for the poor. Eyewitness accounts have her storming away from the free clinic after being recognized. Her biographer reports that after seeking the cheapest treatments for months, 
Her son's condition became incurable, and his leg had to be amputated. In her old age, she developed a hernia, but refused to have an operation she could easily afford, preferring to use a stick to press down the swelling. Hetty even hastened her own death by bringing on a series of stress-induced strokes, arguing with a caretaker over the value of drinking only the less expensive skimmed milk. She was wealthy beyond imagination, yet she chose to live with scarcity. Why? Well, she was raised in scarcity. She went through, her family was very poor. And even though when she went through um, uh, the period in our country's history of the Civil War, um, when they were rationing all kinds of things, she lived for so long with scarcity that even after she became fantastically wealthy, she still lived in scarcity. You know, I have uh, older parents. Um, so my parents were in their 40s when I was born. And their, my, uh, their parents and their siblings um, were Depression-era families. And I've watched aunts and uncles and things only shower once a week because it costs too much to heat water 50 years after the, the, after the Depression. Um, uh, you know, I remember going to visit um, one of my aunt and uncles, uh, and they, uh, the, the house, they did, even though they had heating, uh, central heating, um, they chose to heat their house in the winter months with uh, chopped wood uh, in their fireplace. And we'd, when we'd visit, oh my goodness, I mean, the walls were cold. And my uncle was a really a very successful inventor and engineer. And there was, there was no reason practically for him to have to live with that kind of scarcity. And for many of us, whether it's heady or our own seasons in life or our own upbringings, you know, we can enter the kingdom of God and leave behind, or we can, we can leave behind scarcity, but it's a much different thing to have scarcity leave us. We can, we can walk out of a setting that requires that extreme frugality, and yet those behaviors, those feelings, those ways of addressing life, those ways of relating even to our family members and even to God, it's much different thing to get the scarcity, the spiritual scarcity out of us. And that is what Paul was addressing here at the church in Ephesus. Wealthy people in a metropolitan area living in spiritual scarcity. And he unveiled the majesty, the inheritance, the supreme and unmatched blessing in the kingdom of God and what it means to be the church, and what it means to be the body of Christ, what it means to be in Him. Say that with me. In Him. Who I'm referring to is the Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm grateful for one thing, one thing, I am grateful to be in Him. I am grateful this Thanksgiving to be 
in him and all that that means. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're going to start in chapter 1. This is verses 3 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Paul is writing here. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. If you get nothing else, get that you are chosen before the foundations of the world by the God of the universe, who is our heavenly father. That you are redeemed Your contract has been purchased, and not to enslave you to another master, but to set you free of all contracts and all oppression that has ever been made within the human race on this planet. And that you have been sealed, and sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, so that you may walk with the fullness of the blessing of knowing that you are engaged and that the protection Jesus has extended to you and invited it into you is not just something that he did in history, is not just something that you're waiting for eternity to experience, but that he has brought that to you today. That you have been chosen, you have been redeemed, and that you have been sealed. That is good news, and it's the best deal in the universe. So let's break that down a little bit. The first, say it with me, I am chosen. You know, part of my deep spiritual scarcity growing up was constantly wanting 
to be affirmed, constantly looking for the approval of friends. I mean, to the point where I had a friend, one of my closest friends who lived down the street from me, his family homeschooled all their kids, and I didn't really understand that there was any stigma of homeschooling um, in my younger years. But then when I got to about sixth grade, um, my friend started making fun of me for hanging out with a homeschooled kid. And there was several months where I quit hanging out with him. He was the best friend I had. But when I came to realize the love of our Heavenly Father, that He chose me, He chose us in Him, that spiritual scarcity was burned away and never returned. The word he spoke over me is more powerful than any word by anyone that was spoken over me before. I know this is a lightning rod word, election. But God chose us, he chose you even before he created the universe so that our salvation is holy of his grace and not on the basis of anything we ourselves have done. He chose us in him. Those four words are inseparable. He chose us in him, not in ourselves. He doesn't choose anyone on individual merits or qualities, lest anyone should boast. He is not a respecter of persons, of privilege, of pedigree, of personality. His chosen ones are we who believe. John 1.12 says, But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Now, do we respond to God's grace against our own will? No. We respond because God's grace makes us willing to respond. And yes, that's a mystery. The mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility is, and even after this message, will remain a mystery. I cannot fully explain it. Both are taught in the Bible. Both are true. Both are essential. Let me illustrate. My life was just like the car ride that I was on when I was 20 years old. I was too stoned to put on a seatbelt. I was, I was heading, having the time of my life, so to speak, reveling in great, loud, secular music, lost in the fun of the moment, heading towards destruction. And it was God's grace who spoke into the car and said, Jeff, put your feet on the dash. I didn't want him. I didn't choose him. I didn't think about him. I didn't reach out for him. And frankly, I didn't even know I was in danger. I did not understand my spiritual scarcity. It was not on my mind, but I was headed towards destruction. And when he said, Jeff, put your feet on the dash, when I put my feet on the dash, after the car went headlong over a cliff because my friend lost control of the car and we nosedived into the ocean, I landed on my feet. That's divine sovereignty. That's his grace that intervened to rescue because of his love, not because of anything I did. Now, I could have walked away and squandered that inheritance and left it be and said, thank you very much, Lord, for the second chance or the third chance or the 20th chance or whatever. But you know what? My personal responsibility is I went after and figured out what he was doing and what it meant and why he said I was worth saving 
and I received him and I surrendered to him and I cooperated with him even when it was hard and even when it cost things. And so, yes, his divine sovereignty rescued me and I received him. And because I received him, he chose me in him. That, those words, he chose me in him. He didn't chose me because of what I could bring to the table. He chose me in him because of what he did for me in him so that I might become fully alive in Jesus Christ. And we're not only chosen, but we are predestined for adoption. Big words, I know. Why adoption? I mean, if you think about it, we don't get into the family of God by adoption. We don't, we get into the family of God by being born again. There's a new birth, there's a regeneration. So if we're born again into his family, why does he still need to adopt us? Why is that purpose, that plan, why did he, why did he preordain this this blessing, this conference of blessing of adoption on us when we were spiritually dead and born again fresh into his family. Why do we still need, why are we, would we still be blessed by adoption? Well, if you are a child, can you make use of your inheritance? If you're underage, no. When God the Father predestined adoption for us, let me make sure I get this right. I don't want to misquote myself. Adoption is the act of God by which He gives His born ones an adult standing in the family. Adoption is the act of God by which He gives His born ones an adult standing in the family. Why? so that we might immediately begin to claim our inheritance and enjoy our spiritual blessings. Because a baby cannot legally use an inheritance, but an adult son or daughter can and should. And this means that you do not have to wait for eternity or until you are an old saint before you claim your riches in Christ. You were predestined, or your adoption was predestined, you were predestined for the benefits of that adoption to walk in your inheritance today. So to understand election and predestination or being chosen and accepted and being adopted, you can just simply, if you remember one phrase, election refers to people, predestination refers to purposes. Election refers to people, predestination refers to purposes. We are chosen in Him, all those who will receive Him. And the purposes, the plans, the things that he has set in motion, the blessings, the inheritance, all of the stuff, the, the, the field we get to play on has been predestined for us before the foundation of the universe. Election refers to us, his people. Predestination refers to what he has planned. It's good news. That is good news. We are chosen and adopted to the praise of his glory. Did I lose you? Okay, are you still with me? Okay. So in verses 7 to 12, Paul moves on from the blessing of the Heavenly Father of being chosen and adopted to the blessings of the Son. See, all three, God, three in one, participate, they contribute, they work in harmony for this great plan of salvation that we're included in. 
And so the blessings of the Son in verses 7 through 12 are that I am redeemed. I am redeemed. You know, in the time of the Roman Empire, the people of that age were very used to slavery. It was rampant in the Roman Empire. It was part of their secular culture. There were 60 million people that were slaves in the Roman Empire at the time of this writing. And you think, wow, we must be a lot better now. You know, there's still 48 million people around the globe um, that are in some ways, are, that are trafficked, that have contracts on their life even as young children. That idea of slavery, of having a contract, of having a bid price, was very common in that culture. And though we don't necessarily talk about it as much anymore, it's still a depraved reality of the work of sin in the earth. That we could own and own the destiny of another for our own pleasure or for our own gain. What Jesus is saying here is very, very radical. It was radical then and it's still radical now. You know, there are organizations today like A21, that's Christine Kane's human trafficking organization, and they raise funds and they buy the contracts of those who are being trafficked to set them free. Because when they've been bought, there's nothing on them. Think about that. Yeah, it's one thing to help somebody escape and get on the run. It's a very different thing to pay for them outright. This is what Jesus did for us. Not that we could be on the run from Satan, but that we would be purchased outright and we could turn around and fight with the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not on the run. That scarcity of spirit has to be removed. This is what Paul is addressing. Jesus purchased our contract with his own blood, not to give us another master, but to set us free. Christ died to carry away our sins so they might never again be seen. No written accusations stand against us because our sins have been taken away. Sin made us spiritually poor. But grace makes us spiritually wealthy beyond imagination. When he redeemed us with an act that caused his own death, he set in motion the legal transfer of every spiritual blessing known in the heavenly realms to be credited to our account. His death allowed for the opening of his will. If you notice in this passage, these were people that would have been very used to in the Macedonia Peninsula, in the, in the metropolitan city of Ephesus. They had generational wealth to pass along. This was not a foreign concept. That's why he makes this illustration of the kingdom of God and of the body of Christ, what it means to be in him, as if it were the transfer of a great and abundant inheritance, and that there is a will that he has invited us now, to, that he's revealed the mystery of his will, to gather us together and to give us an inheritance. 
Well, how did we find out about this will? Because, you know, many of us, when people, when our parents or grandparents or when people die, we don't really know what's in their will, what's really in their will, until it's opened. You might think you know, but you don't until it's opened. And then you, the mystery of the person's will is revealed. And when Jesus paid, when he paid with his own life, when he gave up his life, when he paid it in his own blood, his death allowed for the opening, the reading, and our comprehension of his will and testament, his will. His will to gather us together, that's what we see in this passage, that he's going to gather everything in heaven and on earth. He's going to reconcile us to himself, all in Christ, that we are reconciled not only to God the Father, but that we are totally reconciled with one another and that we're reconciled to all of creation. So that the infinite, the intensity of his own, the full and complete result of God the Father's infinite love, propelled by the intensity of his own matchless power across all eternity, would fly and flow unhindered through us and around us and with us in all of creation for all of eternity. This is a good deal, and we can start walking in that today. That salvation is not just a thing that happened in history, and it's not just a thing that we're looking forward to, to someday being able to taste. We have been invited into it. He has brought the salvation and our inheritance to this moment in time, to this day, so that you can walk in it. And how do I know that? How do we know that? Because right after he talks about all of this, verse 13 and 14, he says, In him, in Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed. Say that with me. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. I am sealed. Being sealed with the Holy Spirit first is proof of authenticity. The connotation is that when you sign that letter, you're saying that everything in it you're writing is true and valid and from you. And when the seal of the Holy Spirit is in your heart, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the seal of the Holy Spirit, God the Father is signing His name on your heart and saying, this one is mine. Proof of authenticity. That's why he said, the prophecy said, no longer will you have to look on tablets of stone, but behold, I will write my name on their hearts. This is it. Proof of authenticity. Proof of security. That you will be kept under constant protection. Right in the day, any Roman seal of the day on a building or on a tomb or a proclamation meant that safety would be guaranteed at any cost. The Holy Spirit will keep you safe on this voyage through shrieking eel-infested waters. That's a Princess Bride reference. Until the end of this age has come. You know what that means? The the actual phrase, the earnest or the down payment, the, the proof, the guarantee, the seal, is the same word, the same phrase that would use to describe a bridegroom who put an engagement ring on his bride-to-be. 
Now, when I put, well, this is my ring, but when I put Michelle's ring on her finger, what I was saying is, is that I am, I am proactively extending to you all the benefits of my name, my reputation, my promise to, of security, my willingness to fight for you and lay down my life for you, even before anything's been con- consummated and before I will enjoy anything that is based on that covenant. I am putting my ring on you. We are the bride. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus came, and when we received the promise of the Father, he put his spiritual, his eternal engagement ring on your finger, on our finger, so that we would know we will be secure and that any fight that's ours is his fight. Any struggle that's ours is his. Any place of lack that we experience is his to meet. And he has met it all. Every spiritual blessing. He has enveloped us and given us the promise of his name and his security to see us through all the way to the very end. And the last is a proof of authority. Representative power. The seal of the Holy Spirit allows the believer to walk, to act, and to operate in this world with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. The Holy Spirit carries the complete backing of heaven with us wherever we go. Now remember back at the beginning of this story, at the beginning of this message, and I told you that my wife and I, we experienced a season of scarcity at the beginning of our marriage, financial scarcity. Well, I at one point... The scarcity had not left in here. And I didn't really necessarily trust the provision of God. And I really wanted to bless my wife with a diamond necklace. So I charged it on Jehovah Visa. (laughs) With payments forevermore. And I gave it to her, and, you know, she's, like, really overjoyed, but then she realized we have one bank account and that she actually paid for that, too. (laughs) And it was like, now, wait a minute. Is this really a blessing? (laughs) Ushers, can you, uh, I forgot, can you pass out communion? Thank you. Please forgive me. We're going to take communion here in just a minute at the end of the story, and we'll we'll be done. Um, Well, I bought this necklace, uh, and she wore the necklace for about two weeks, and then she lost it. And, I mean, I remember in the moment, like, the emotions that came out of that were just really, really shocking. Because then you're like, why did I, I, I have payments forevermore, but no necklace. <laughs> right? And, but even worse than that, I started to see the guilt and the shame on my wife's face for having lost something that I had laid down or had been willing to sacrifice so much for. And like it was, I mean, we looked everywhere we, we, and we didn't have a lot of space and we had no furniture. I mean, literally, we, we had like plastic beach chairs uh, in our little apartment. Um, macaroni, top ramen, Trader Joe's refried beans, right? You know, the, the, 
you couldn't lose something real easily in our, in our house. We looked in cars everywhere we went, nothing. Like, and we were just, we have no idea where it was. And it was, you know, about a week, seven or eight days of just searching for that. And I really, like, I got to this point, I was like, we, we really need to pray. We, I mean, we had prayed, but I, this was not just the, the prayer of somebody saying, hey, you know, could you help out here? I was recognizing the spiritual scarcity in my heart, and I needed to change the way I was looking at the Lord and receiving from the Lord and relating to the Lord. So my wife and I, we got down on our knees right in front of the couch, right at the coffee table, clear coffee table. There's nothing on it. We're setting our arms down. And before I realized what I was going to pray, these words came out, Father, forgive me for not trusting in your provision and for going out and buying something on a credit card that I could not afford and how that really flies in the face of, God, your provision. And I'm pouring out my heart and I'm repenting. I'm like, Lord, and now I've put guilt on my wife who have lost something that I never should have bought. And, you know, I'm just pouring out my heart. I was like, Lord, would you, would you forgive me? Would you heal me? And for her sake, would you show us where this necklace is that she might know um, and not have to be burdened with this guilt ever again? And we waited. Nothing came to mind. We opened our eyes, and the necklace was sitting there coiled up on the coffee table. That's part of our inheritance. The scarcity removed in an instant. I will never doubt the provision of the Lord. I don't know whether that necklace is the one we lost and he transported it or he just made a new one and put it right there. But I know that necklace means a lot more to me than the four itty-bitty diamonds that are in it. It means that he has sealed us and all the inheritance of heaven, every spiritual blessing has been brought to us today. Never be the same. 